you a, the passage of scripture again. I'm going to read from verse 5 to verse uh, 8. Exodus 34. Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word again this evening. Lord, when we come to your word, as I say, every time we come to it, it is the word of the living and true God. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. And Lord, as we approach your word, Father, we just pray that you, by your power of your Holy Spirit, would enable the preaching of your word and that you, Holy Spirit, would apply this word to your people, that you would apply it to their hearts and minds. Lord, those who need encouraging, oh Lord, that you would encourage them this, this evening. Those who need maybe chastening, oh Lord, that you would chasten. But Lord, we pray ultimately that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. Bless us, oh Lord. We ask that you'd come down in power into the company your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This evening I want to present you all with a question. One which on the face of it might seem... A simple question, yet the profundity of it is one which we cannot help but delve into, but never really scratch the surface of its magnitude. The question I present to you all this evening is this. If someone was to ask you, why did Jesus have to die on the, on the cross in order to forgive sinners, could we, as a congregation of believers, give an answer for the hope that is within us? That you may have seen that theme running through the last two weeks I've been with you. Can we give a reason for the hope that is within us? I'm sure there are many of you here who could give an adequate answer. However, I fear that many professing Christians, and even maybe some sat here on the chairs, or maybe those tuning in online, may not be able to answer this most vital question. As I've said, the statement of faith, which is plastered on, on modern-day Christendom, is that I do not want doctrine, I just want Jesus has caused an ignorance to creep into the church and questions that we should be able to answer with certain conviction has left modern-day church scratching its head. You may be saying, Nick, you've said this before. And I say, brethren, I'll more than likely say it again if you have me. But that we are meant to contend earnestly for the faith. Not just the man who is an apologist or the pastor who is at the front. But you here, my dear saints, are commanded to be guardians of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Some of you may be saying, well, Nick, this question you've asked us is a relatively easy one. He died in my place to forgive my sins. And some of you may even have a theological answer. He died as my penal substitutionary atonement. And I say amen. That is correct. But again, I want to thunder down the question to each and every single one of you. Why did that need to happen? I have heard from many atheists or agnostics and even people from other faiths say if God is God, why can't he just forgive us instead of needing the death of Jesus? If God is all-powerful, why can't he just forgive us when we ask him? Think about it for a moment, brethren. Think about this. Christianity is the only faith that affirms that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Even in Judaism, they have no sacrificial system anymore. Therefore, they are told they must repent and try and make reparation for the sins that they have committed. Islam says, just repent and Allah will forgive you. But we say, brethren... That is inadequate. We say that is not enough. And I ask the question, why do we? Why do we? Why did Jesus, the second person of the blessed Trinity, need to take on flesh and give his life in the most brutal way as he did in order that we will be forgiven? And this is the question I ask each and every single one of us this evening. And I say, I say without apology and without the, with the authority of Scripture, the salvation of our very souls could not come in any way than this great event taking place at Golgotha. Without the death of Jesus, not one soul, I say, could be in heaven. And I even go as far as this. If there could have been a different way, there would have been. Does Paul not say that? If there is a righteousness that could have attained righteousness, sorry, if there was a law that could have attained righteousness, it would have been given. And again I ask, why? And the reason why I believe, I'm not saying us brethren, but many in modern day Christendom cannot give an answer in the day we live is because in my opinion, we have so neglected the attributes of God. Or the attributes of God which we study are the ones that leave us constantly feeling comfortable. Let's be honest, brethren. We have no problem with the study of God's love and his mercy and his grace. We love to study and meditate on those things. And you know what? Rightly so. However, if we are to love God, we are to study all of whom God is. So that means, brethren, we must also delve in to God's wrath and his justice. Likewise, his immutability, that he is unchanging. And brethren, we love to talk about God is immutable in regards to his love and his grace, which he is. But brethren, God is also immutable with regards to his wrath and his justice. If we are to love God with all our hearts, souls and minds, we are to study and to, and to adore 
all of whom God is. The answer to why did Jesus have to die on the cross that we may be reconciled to God is found in the very attributes of God himself. And this is why I want us to consider this great passage of scripture this evening. As within this passage of scripture we have God himself, not a prophet, not an apostle, but we have God himself giving a self-sermon who telling Moses whom he stands before. The Lord God of Israel is preaching to Moses about himself. And it's within this scripture we not only see the answer to our question, but we also see what theologians call the divine dilemma. What's that? Some of you may be saying, what's the divine dilemma? And that, my friends, is where we must start this evening before we can even start to look at why Christ had to die on the cross. Which leads me to my first point this evening, if you're taking notes. My first point is the divine dilemma. The divine dilemma. Some of you may be saying, Nick, that's a very strange heading. It's a very strange heading. In fact, it may even make some of you feel quite uncomfortable. However, what we are about to look at in this passage of Scripture holds the greatest dilemma in the entirety of the Bible. Let us take a look. Come down to verse 5 of Exodus 34. We read, now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. We see in verse 5 that God is declaring his everlasting name. And as we saw on Thursday, his name is Yahweh. Then we see in verse 6 that the Lord tells Moses that he is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding, abounding in goodness and truth. God is declaring his goodness and his tremendous mercy, which we are all so thankful for. Then he continues and says, he keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. God, repeating himself three times, is declaring that there is not one sin that he cannot forgive. And my friends, I declare to you that that is really good news. God is not only declaring to Moses, but to us here this evening, he is a God who delights in mercy, as he is the great forgiver of iniquities. So far, so good. So what's the problem? What's the dilemma, Nick, which you bring us? Right in the next sentence, we are hit with this. He then declares, he will by no means clear the guilty. Your translation may even say this, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You may be saying, I don't get you, Nick. Let me ask you this, brethren. How can somebody need forgiveness without being guilty 
in the first place. You have to be guilty in order to need forgiveness. On one hand, God is saying, I will forgive the sinner. But then on the other hand, he says, but the one who sinned against me, I will not let go unpunished. How on earth does that go together? Let me just give you one more example. In the Old Testament, we're told in Proverbs 17, 15, you don't need to turn there, let me just read it to you. We read, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them are alike, are an abomination to the Lord. So those who justify wicked men and women are an abomination to the Lord. And I'm sure we're all excited saying, well, yeah, that's right. If someone was guilty of the vilest crimes in our courts and the judge turned round and said, I justify you, I clear you, you are free from punishment. Brethren, would we be in uproar? Yes, we would be in absolute uproar. So how on earth, brethren, listen to me here. How on earth do we expect God to forgive you and me here this evening? who are all found guilty before a righteous and a holy God. How can we read that? Yet in Romans 4, 5, we are, re- we are hit with this. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, that's God, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So we're told right after that God is someone, God is one who justifies wicked and ungodly men. Brethren, I have to ask you again, how does this correspond with what we have just read? And this is the divine dilemma that we are all faced with in Scripture. If God is 100% just, how can he forgive sinners who deserve punishment and still remain a righteous God. As I said, not one person would say a judge who just lets off an offender who has committed awful crimes, a righteous judge. And this is the great problem found in the Bible. How can God, who is the God of justice, the God who says, I am the God who loves justice, forgive sinful men and women? If God is just, which he is, brethren, He is just. He cannot forgive you and I here this evening who are all found guilty before him. As justice must be upheld, as if justice is not upheld, God no longer remains righteous. Can you see now why theologians have called this the divine dilemma? As this great mountain which stands before us all must be dealt with. God, because of who he is, must honour his law and his demands. In fact, I rephrase that. Because of God, who he is, he wants to honour his laws and its demands, which leaves you and I here this evening, unless this dilemma is resolved in grave danger. As we this morning, brethren, stand guilty not just of one crime, but an absolute multitude 
of crimes against this thrice holy God. As we hear in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Brethren, the scale of this problem is huge. The consequences thereof catastrophic. The punishment cataclysmic. Eternal damnation under the very wrath of this God forever and ever and ever. No parole, no second chances. As the God who we have sinned against is eternal, the punishment likewise is eternal. Brethren, I think we have lost scale of how immense this problem is. Therefore, the solution to this problem has to be drastic. And this, my friends, I say, this, my friends, I say, we must be people who talk about sin. Friends, if we have any preachers who do not talk about sin... The Holy Spirit is not in their ministry. For Jesus said he shall convict the world of sin and righteousness. If we do not tell people who are not yet in Christ about their sin, we, brethren, are harming them. We are harming them. And the visible church, I say this, brethren, the visible church has painted God a picture in this nation that he is just some great grandfather in the sky. And will not punish anyone. Therefore, leaving people to live in a way which is completely contrary to God. As they hear phrases from professing Christians such as, Just come to Jesus because he loves you so much. And you're breaking his heart. And they say it like you're doing Jesus a favour by coming to him. Brethren, that convicts no one and it is not the gospel. I challenge each and every single one of us here today. You will not find the gospel preached like that from the lips of the apostles or any of the prophets. How did Peter deal with sin when he preached in the book of Acts? Let us just look there for a moment. This is chapter 3 where he preaches at Solomon's portico. He says, Men of Israel... Why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us that, that by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life, whom God has raised from the dead, which we are witnesses. Peter pointed out Israel's sin. You are the ones who denied the Holy One. You are the ones who killed the Prince of Life. He pointed out their sin. He didn't mince his words. He called sin, sin. And how often we hear preachers today say it's just a mistake. Just a little accident. Brethren, sin is cosmic treason against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Sin is bad. And that is an understatement. And how did Peter deal with them? Did he say, would you just accept Jesus into your heart? I see that hand, sir, over there. 
No. No, he said this. Repent. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Sin must be dealt with, brethren. As the God whom we are presented with in Scripture is a righteous, righteous, holy God. And he will not and cannot overlook sin. His justice demands retribution. I know there's few of us here, but there may be people online. I speak to those in the congregation online who do not yet trust in Christ just for a moment. You don't think about your sin very much. God thinks very much about your sin. God thinks very much about your sin. You may tune in week in, week out. You may come week in and week out and don't go and go home and don't really think about that old rugged cross which you've heard being preached about. You need to think again about why would God crush his only begotten son. This is serious, brethren. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. This is serious. No more time for comfortable Sunday Christianity. This is not a game. This is not a game. It's not a Sunday club. This is reality. Life, death, heaven, hell, eternity. This is serious, brethren. We need to be straight talking again about sin and on the seriousness of sin. We must again, we must rebuke those in churches who don't want to talk about sin because they are scared of losing church members. Brethren, I say this, they're sending people to hell. They're sending people to hell because they will not use what the Bible tells us to proclaim from God's thrice holy word. And it's only when the unbeliever sees the magnitude of sin and the severity of sin and the consequences under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that that sinner will then start to ask the question, how is this mountain moved if the consequences in this God is so presented to us? And which leads me to my next point. Justice satisfied. Justice satisfied. Oh, brethren, if that was the end. <laughs> oh, brethren, if that was the end, we would have so much reason to be in despair, would we not? If that was the end. And I had to bring you this evening. I have to bring it every time I preach the gospel in the open air. The magnitude of this problem. So we can rightly, by God's help, answer that question which we asked at the beginning. And it's only now. It's only now that when we are presented with the law of God and we see its demands that we can start to ask that question, what was happening at Golgotha? Without understanding the justice of God, seeing Christ upon the cross makes no sense. And maybe, maybe, that's why so many people can't relate to Christianity in our day. If we paint God as some great grandfather on the sky, and then we say he's, he's crushing his only begotten son, it makes no sense to them. I really hope that we see this evening that taking sin lightly and not proclaiming the magnitude of the problem, it does no benefit. So what was happening at Calvary? What was happening 
at Calvary. How is this mountain moved which we have looked at? If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.21. I brought this passage to you last time I was with you in February and I have no apologies of bringing this passage again. For in this short few words here, oh brethren, we see this wonderful problem being resolved. We read, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Firstly, brethren, we must understand, when a man and a woman places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, at that moment, they are declared righteous by God. Not only declared righteous, but treated by the Father as righteous. That's what it means at the end where it says that we may become the righteousness of God. So when it says he, that's talking of God the Father, makes him, that's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, sin for us, we must grasp what this actually means. What this is not saying, brethren, is that Jesus, while he was on that cross, actually became a sinner for that time. That would be blasphemy. It would be heresy. This means that Jesus, the Son of God, as he hangs there on that tree, he was being treated as if he had committed every single sin that we as sitters, uh, sinners had committed. Jesus on that cross was not just some example. He was not just there as some martyr. This was, as I said, the second person of the blessed Trinity, the son of the living God, being treated as if he had lived the life of the most worst criminal that ever lived. In fact, I bring it further home. He was, he was being treated as if he, as if he lived mine and your life. That's what he was doing there. Every lie that we've ever told, every ill word, everything we've stole, everything we've blasphemed, every act of cosmic treason was there being laid upon the sinless Son of God. And he was being wounded for our transgressions and he was being bruised for our iniquities. The Father... God the Father was punishing his son in the place of sinful men and women. And that is why it says in that most shocking verse in Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, or it pleased the Lord to crush him. Yes, friends. Yes, brethren. Jesus, the God-man, was being crushed by divine indignation and justice in the place of sinners. And it pleased the Lord to do so. As Jesus was on that cross, every one of those sins that even we have committed today, he was absorbing the wave after wave after wave after wave after wave of God's wrath against our sin. On that cross, he was making perfect, perfect propitiation in the place of 
his people. And that's what propitiation means. If you read your scriptures and you're wondering what does that mean, it means to appease, to make satisfaction. Christ on the cross was making perfect satisfaction in appeasing the wrath of a holy God. And that is why we can sing that song. I know some of you may not like it from Stuart Townsend. Upon that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And we need to understand that in our day, brethren. The wrath and the justice of God needed to be satisfied. And unfortunately... So many who profess Christ try and deny this and say the concept of Jesus being crushed under the full weight of his father's wrath. They say it's barbaric, but I say it's the only hope that a sinner like me has. It's the only hope that I have and you have. I hope this evening, brethren, that is not you. That is not you here this evening. As if you have a God whom can forgive without the law and demands being rectified through the justice of his son, you don't have the God of scripture. And this here separates us from every other religion. As we say, because God is just and righteous, his justice, divine justice. And I just want to bring this home to you. And I know I mentioned this when I was here in February, but I bring it to you again for reason to bring this home. We know that just before the crucifixion, the Lord Jesus Christ was in anguish. And he sweat, as it was, great drops of blood. Some will tell you at this moment, Jesus was seeing the cat of nine tails being laid upon his back. He, may, he saw the nails being driven into his hands, the crown of thorns, the mockery, the spitting, the slapping. And he was terrified of that. Do we really believe that, brethren? Do we really believe that that's what the Son of the living God was, 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 was terrified of and sweat great drops of blood, as it were? We only have to have a glimpse into church history and martyr after martyr after martyr after martyr, the blood of the martyrs. And many of them praise God as they went to their deaths. Many of them even found it a privilege that they may have died in the same manner as their saviour. Peter, after all, was he not crucified upside down? And now they see the captain of their salvation in anguish because Roman soldiers are going to beat him up. We must look again at Gethsemane, brethren. Jesus said, just before his crucifixion, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death, stay with me and watch. And then he said, oh, my father, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Paul Washer, one of my favorite preachers, asked the congregation this question, which I ask you, what was in the cup? Brethren, we can't read our Bibles and not ask questions. We can't read them like a novel. We have to read and ask questions. What was in the cup? What was Christ in anguish about? Throughout the Old Testament, we see the cup is a symbol of something severe. Psalm 75 verse 8, For in the hands of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it is fully mixed, 
and he poured it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Jeremiah 25, 15. For this says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of either the fury or the wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you drinking. Brethren, in that cup, in, your, in that cup, was the divine indignation and justice of a thrice holy God. It held within it the punishment that would have taken an eternity for you and I to endure. And the spotless Lamb of God, within three hours, was to drain every last dreg. And therefore not one drop be left to you and I, if we are in Christ. And this is the only way that we could be reconciled to God. Because the sonless son of God asked the question, if it be possible, but not my will, yours be done. So Christ had to do this in order that we may be forgiven. And it's within this, brethren, it's within this we see the two questions we asked earlier and how they are resolved. The divine dilemma is now answered. How can God forgive sinners and remain righteous? Answer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of all those who believe upon him, the transgression, iniquity and sin was being punished in his son. Yes, our actual sin, everyone, and that one as I spoke of this morning, that one that still haunts you, was laid upon him. And therefore we can say, justice has been satisfied. We now as God's people can proclaim from the housetops, my debt is paid. And as Christ said, Telelestai, it is finished. And as we heard in Psalm 103 this morning, God will now not deal with you and I according to our sins, as Jesus paid it all. As David says, blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Why will God not impute sin to you and I if we're in Christ this evening? For they were imputed to the Saviour. And there's nothing left to impute. All paid for. Divine dilemma solved. Romans 3, 22 through 26. Sorry, 22. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory, for, glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God still remains just. And now he has made a way where he can be the justifier of the one who has faith in his son. 
Can we now see, brethren? Can we now see why it was essential that Christ had to go to Calvary? Jesus, being fully God, was the only one who could bear the full force of God's wrath. And because he was fully man, he can and still is the only one who can represent us perfectly before the throne of grace. And not only was God demonstrating his justice and that being satisfied, but at the cross, all of God's attributes are on display and especially his holiness god was putting on show for all mankind that when he deals with sin in regards to salvation he does it in the most just and righteous way we see god's righteousness and justice as i said displayed as he has not overlooked the sins of god's people we see his holiness as he is completely set apart from sinners and cannot have any part with it but what we see Brethren, if there's anything you see from this today, what we see in this is the absolute severity and magnitude of the love of God which is found in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes, God's wrath is severe. Oh, but brethren, his love is severe. Remember who our Saviour is. He is God. He didn't go to the cross unwillingly and the Father was pouring out his Son and the Son didn't want to go. No. Before the foundation of the world as we looked at last Sunday evening, he knew what it would cost him and he willingly went to the cross with all those sins that you still look at at times and go, oh, alas, alas. And he bore the full wrath because why? For God so does love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. The Father loved you. He sent the Son. Jesus loved you. The Holy Spirit applied and woke you up because he loved you. And that is why we see the goodness and the severity of God at the cross. And that is why we can sing with the songwriter. We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet. And a guilty world is washed by love's pure stream oh friends if you think me talking on the wrath of god this evening and all i've spoke about is that and that's all you getting brethren i have spoke very much on god's wrath and rightly so but if you're in christ today this must show you the love of god that he has for you that he would rather have his let me just give you an analogy i know i'm going on but please bear with me i am a sinner i am evil but I, with clear conscience, would die a death for my children. And I'm evil. God, who is altogether lovely, altogether good, how much more does he love his only begotten son? Yet, he was willing to give him for you here this evening. Oh, brethren, that should, leap us, that should make us leap for joy. I finish this evening with two comments. I first speak to you who are in Christ Jesus. This wrath, as I have said, 
This wrath which I have spoken about has now passed. Just like the angel of death who passed over Israel when they saw the blood of the Lamb. When death meets you, my dear saints, death will see the blood of the Lamb upon your doorpost. The wrath is finished. Your debt is paid. Rest in your Saviour who paid so much for you. And for you online, or even you who may not have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, I want you just for a moment to think about what you have heard today. Every excuse that you've given yourself. I'm not a bad person. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not the murderer. I'm not the gang member. Whatever it may be. You think God will accept me. But as you have seen this evening, God will not overlook sin. The only way that a man may be reconciled unto a thrice holy God is by that one to whom God sent. Which is the work of the... What is it that we must do to work the words of God? Believe upon the one to whom God has sent. Repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. And the promise is he will wash away your sins. And you may know that this wrath which we have spoke of today is past.